You're listening to the Wesley Seminary Podcast. Your host today is Dr. Aaron Perry, Associate Professor of Pastoral Theology and Leadership. We live in an age of crisis, moral judgments, over and over and over again, daily critical moments, daily opportunities of judgment that are coming our way. Today's guest, Jonathan Dodson, has been coming at these as a pastor, pastor in the midst of a COVID world, pastor in the midst of a uh, uh, political world, pastor in the midst of just the run-of-the-mill leading in the church. And out of this, he found great wisdom in the Beatitudes. We live in an age of crisis. We're confronted with calamity every time we read the headlines, writes Jonathan. In today's episode, we're going to listen to how he learned to navigate these some, some of these things and how he started to apply the Beatitudes to them, how he started to teach the Beatitudes to his church, how the Beatitudes started to cut through different moral issues of our day to address underlying moral concerns. In today's episode, you're going to hear Jonathan and I talk about the Beatitudes and their application in the 21st century Western world. We're going to hear us talk about learning to listen to Jesus and how the Beatitudes might be applied in an everyday kind of context. Thanks so much for tuning in. Stay tuned for a word from our sponsor and then enjoy the podcast. We are Wesley and you belong here. My name is Victoria Borum and I am Wesley. I'm Lenny Lucchetti and I am Wesley. My name is Chris and guess what? I am Wesley. Hi, I'm Tina Shapit and I am Wesley. We recognize this beautiful diversity that the Lord has called together that is Wesley. My name is Corey Merritt and I am Wesley. I am Wayne Brown and I am Wesley. I am Colleen Durr and I belong here. You belong here too because we are Wesley. Welcome to the Wesley Seminary Podcast. Jonathan, it's great that you've joined us. Thank you. It's a, it's a privilege to be with you. I'm looking forward to our conversation. Our Good Crisis, Overcoming Moral Chaos with the Beatitudes. You've just finished uh, writing and publishing this book. I picked it up in part because I had, uh, you know, just kind of caught it, right? Just kind of caught the, oh, somebody's writing about the Beatitudes, probably the most famous sermon that Jesus presented. Maybe a chance to connect with a wider culture. Um, mm-hmm. If not through the, this episode, maybe somebody shares it with them. So I was like, well, it'd be interesting to talk about uh, the Beatitudes. Now, to, before we kind of get into that, I want to ask you, you talk about us being in a moral crisis. What does mm-hmm. this mean? Well, we, we wake up to a crisis every day. If you wake up and you check your phone uh, and you start scrolling through your feeds, you'll see any number of political crisis, sex scandal. You know, there's crises uh, global crisis, uh, you know, justice crisis, race crisis. So the the uh, the idea or the presence of crisis is uh, it's ubiquitous. Um, so that's kind of a felt need, I think, for all of us. How how do I cope with being un- inundated with so many um, crises, so much moral calamity, so much you know, it's overwhelming. So there's that, just the felt need to address. It. But if, you, if you're going to think about what is a moral crisis, I think we have to kind of back up and ask ourselves, what is a crisis? Because some people will declare, you know, that, you know, finding a parking spot on Twitter is a crisis <laughs> or that, uh, you know, there's a hair day crisis, you know. So in these days, it's as though the word has become flat and uh, it doesn't have as much distinct meaning. But the word crisis itself comes from the Greek word crisis. Um, 
and uh, Jesus uses it in uh, the Gospel of Matthew to defer to the day of judgment. Um, <clears throat> so a crisis is a, not only a time in which something is inconvenient, but it's a time in which something significant needs to be addressed and to be addressed quickly. Um, I would argue, and I think if we are all in our right minds would say parking lots and hair are not a significant issue, you know. Um, and so I think in order to understand what we're dealing with here, let's get the etymology right. The word crisis originally referred to a judgment, a moral judgment about action. Um, <clears throat> Aristotle used it in his writings about the civic proceedings and making judgments. Um, Jesus used it there in the Gospel of Matthew about a day of judgment. So when we're talking about crisis, we're not just talking about swift action to, uh, to remedy a problem, but that there is some kind of discernment that needs to happen, some kind of moral judgment that's required in order to take a course of action. Um, <clears throat> and so uh, as we think about crisis, I wanna tie it to its own etymology, to its own kind of uh, original meaning. And that is, it's not just uh, quick action, but it's moral action. It's, uh, it's, it's making a choice based on what's right and what's wrong. So uh, th that gets us quickly to morality or ethics. What is right or wrong? How do we discern when that uh, political issue hits our screen, when that sex scandal rides up, when the, uh, whatever the, how do we discern, decide whether it's right or wrong? We all need a moral compass. We all need an ability to, to, to make a judgment in the moment to try to remedy the crisis or pass a judgment on the crisis. So that then that, asks, that, that raises the question, where do you get the moral discernment to make the decision? And uh, there are varieties of ways to make ethical decisions. Um, I'm choosing to, to go with Jesus' Beatitudes, which even by secular people are recognized as uh, having moral clarity. Uh, Richard Dawkins, no friend of Christianity, lauded the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount as uh, way ahead of its time in its uh, moral reasoning. So <clears throat> some have written that it is the greatest moral document of all time. Certainly it's probably the most well-known teachings of Jesus. So if we wanna have some kind of bearing, some kind of guide in making a decision when those crises hit our phone, uh, we need moral vision. And Jesus provides that in the Beatitudes and in the Sermon on the Mount as a whole. Uh, it, it's interesting that you kind of give these examples of parking spot or bad hair day mm -hmm. or what that is. And the, the title that you've given the book, Our Good Crisis, has this play on that there's both opportunity, right? There's a good crisis that we can take advantage mm -hmm. of or, or use to speak something that Jesus taught us into our world, uh, theology for the modern day and its mm -hmm. issues. Uh, and at the same time, it's a crisis about the good, right? Mm -hmm. well, what is good? It's a, it's a forced judgment. And so there's a way that somebody might even say, uh, well, who are you to say that me not getting a parking spot is not a crisis for me, right? Like maybe it has a ripple effect in my life, right? There's that that little sliver that you're that you're pulling out there doesn't give you you know a perspective to say uh, what's right, true, valuable, good, beautiful in in my life, or or as far as uh, you know having a bad hair day, or or mm -hmm. not being able to present myself at my best, right? They might they might say like that is crisis for me, and yet you're mm -hmm. like you said taking us back into the beatitudes to be something to say you know what you're right. There's there's a variety of ways that we are saying 
what counts as right, good, true, and beautiful. And, and in fact, uh, what results uh, in peace or perhaps safety for some people results in, oh, now we've got to make a judgment, right? Now it's crisis for others. Uh, mm-hmm. So there's ways that, that the events um, create crisis for some, even if they alleviate crisis uh, for others. So you've taken mm-hmm. us back to the Beatitudes. I'd love for you to chat with us just a little bit. You've got us introduced here, but how do the Beatitudes, as you read them, orient us to virtue or to moral goodness? Well, Jesus, uh, as he you know, climbs upon the plain in Luke or on the Mount in Matthew, looks out across the masses, which are comprised of Jews and Gentiles from the Decapolis, uh, you know, people influenced by Greek and Roman culture, and then certainly Jews. So you've got a variety of people present as he gives this sermon. And he is attempting to give them moral vision, uh, but he's also trying to give them a vision for the kingdom of God, where the moral vision comes from. So you can kind of go wrong with the Beatitudes when you treat them merely as ethical and moral statements. Hmm. Every single Beatitude is kind of divided into, you know, uh, two parts. The first part has pretty much a moral punch to it. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the righteous. You know, uh, blessed are those who mourn. These are things that that we are responsible to do, to be righteous, to be humble, meek. Uh, But they all are attached with a kind of kingdom promise. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Um, For, you know, uh, they shall inherit the earth. So, it's important that as we think about these, that we receive the kind of moral vision that's there. It is about moral goodness, but it's not only about moral goodness. It's about moral goodness that flows from the king who orders all things, hmm. uh, from the kingdom of God, from which uh, ethical clarity, true righteousness uh, originates. That's the claim of Jesus. So it would be a do a disservice to Jesus to read them only as morals, but it would also be a disservice just to think about it in terms of you know kingdom precepts, as if they were they're so heavenly that they're no earthly good. So you have an intersection here of kind of everyday ethics, based on Jesus' announcement of the kingdom of God breaking into this world, and He's the pinpoint of that. He is the King walking the earth at this moment. So he has every right to give us this vision. Yeah, I like how that's not simply the words of a moral teacher, but the the manifesto of a of a king who's establishing kingdom. And there's this deep sense of authority that he's he's not just offering these; he's pronouncing these. Right? There's a there's a way that these are uh, you could say blessings that that take effect because he's spoken the word in as much as they are received by faith and then and then acted upon. And you've done some work with the with the beatitudes that you say you know for the person who would receive these and orient their lives their lives around them that this is what would help them flourish, right? Mm-hmm. And so there's there's a way that that is, uh, can have an element of attraction. Yes, we cannot set them aside simply as, you know, good moral ideas that we can kind of take or leave and maybe, you know, like Dawkins says, ahead of his time. But these this truly is the path to flourishing, both in the first century and in the 21st century. And I like how you, mm-hmm. you discuss and unpack that, you know, those those who do this and, and blessed or flourish, those who uh, are poor in spirit, those who are mourned, those who are hunger and thirst for righteousness will flourish, right? This is the, mm-hmm. the, mm-hmm. the attitude of it. So you've taken the Beatitudes and you've done the work of placing them in a 21st century context. I'm going to read off a, a couple of the, the Beatitudes so the listener has a sense of how mm-hmm. it is, and then we'll go a little bit deeper into one of them. So mm-hmm. you have... Um, 
Uh, blessed are those who mourn in an age of distraction. Blessed are those who are meek in an age of hubris. Uh, blessed are those uh, who hunger and thirst for righteousness in an age of values, right? This is kind of the, the way you've done to, to take the blessing, to take the beatitude, and then to put it in a 21st century Western context. Uh, the first beatitude you cover is blessed are the poor in spirit for uh, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And you contrast it with being uh, in the age of big me. So blessed are the poor in spirit in an age of big me. Talk to us about what you mean by this age of big me and what it means to be poor in spirit. Well, the age of the big me is a phrase I borrowed from uh, David Brooks. Uh, and the, the idea here as I've kind of developed it, some of the book is that the age of the big me is that my perspective on anything, whether it's a crisis, morality, whatever, obscures Jesus' perspective. So there's a sense in which um, in the age of the big me, whatever I think about ethics, justice, race, gender, whatever I deem appropriate is uh, how I discern what is good as opposed to looking to Jesus for his authority and his determination, what's good. And he is promising that with each beatitude. You will flourish. You'll be blessed if you embrace this. Um, so <clears throat> there are two different ways in the age of the big me that I think you can go with poor in spirit. So uh, blessed are the poor in spirit is a, is a kind of um, puzzling phrase. You know, people uh, really struggle with this, even scholars. Uh, one way would it take it would be to take it literally like, uh, you know, uh, blessed are those who are poor, which in the Gospel of Luke, it, is, it says that it doesn't say blessed are the poor in spirit. And Jesus is, is speaking to an agrarian economy. He's, he's speaking to people who who lack, um, you know, so there there is a sense in which I think this is directed to those who are circumstantially or economically poor. Um, that Jesus has a heart for that. And, and this comes out of Isaiah 61. This sermon comes out of where we're, we're told that uh, that the, the good news would be announced and it would uh, manifest in cities being renewed and that uh, Jesus, the Messiah, would be the one to announce this good news. And it is for the brokenhearted. It is for the downcast. It is for the poor. So if you're being exegetically faithful and you kind of dig your hermeneutical tunnel from Luke to Isaiah, you've got to retain some of the physicality of poverty here in Jesus' teaching. It is physical economic poverty. However, there is this little prepositional phrase in spirit. And so there's a sense in which it's not only that, um, that it's not just uh, literal, literal, but it is um, attitudinal, that, that uh, I have a spirit that is poor, that is in touch with my own poverty, with my own spiritual lack before an infinite and holy God. And so there, I believe both of those are at work here in this phrase, that we are to acknowledge our utter nothingness, our, our being spiritually destitute before a holy, omnipotent, glorious God, and yet at the same time be in touch with those who are, who are themselves economically uh, oppressed and, and lack in resources. So I think both of those meanings are present here in blessed are the poor in spirit. The challenge to be that person, if you want to get really simple, it's just humble and generous. A poor in spirit person is humble and they're generous. They're in touch with those in need and they're in touch with their own need. That's what it means to be poor in spirit. Now, if that sounds great, 
but the challenge is the big me. Like, you know, how do I get over my own ego? How do I get over my own love of comfort uh, in order to relate to a God like this and to relate to those in need? And uh, so in the age of the big me, there's such a challenge. Um, you know, I talk about the two different types of me's that surface. There's a therapeutic me. Um, <clears throat> and I'm kind of taking a page from Christopher Lash, uh, the, uh, the culture of narcissism, who uh, wrote that, I think, in the 70s. And it was very, you know, appropriate for the time and it's appropriate now. Um, but he, he, he describes us as having a transcendental attention to the self that we give the self a kind of liturgy, a doxology, a devotion that actually doesn't belong to the self, but belongs to God. And when we have, when we do that, and it's reinforced by seeking, you know, attention on social media, uh, when it's reinforced by, you know, pursue what you, what you're most passionate about, when everything kind of revolves around me, my passions, my pursuits, my likes, it, it obscures the greatness of Jesus. And so there's this kind of therapeutic, you know, transcendental attention to me, me, me. It's very hard to be humble when you're enamored with yourself. And um, it's, it's, it's uh, impossible uh, to be poor in spirit. So the question is, how do you then become poor in spirit when you're, you're, you're in this kind of machine of the big me? It's in your heart, it's in your culture, it's in you know, coming through your phone. And, um, <clears throat> and I think you have to find something greater than yourself hmm. in order to be poor in spirit. So I go to the Colorado every summer and I um, hike the Rocky Mountains. And when I reach this peak and I get this grand vista across the other, uh, you know, 14,000 foot peaks there, um, I am humbled in the moment. I feel so tiny. I feel so, you know, uh, just, <laughs> you know, marginalized. And yet at the same time, I feel exhilarated, lifted up because I'm around something greater than myself. And in a similar way, when we slow down and we get in front of the greatness of Jesus Christ as King and as Messiah, as a Redeemer and as a Lord, and we look him in the eyes and in the face, we listen to his voice, the same thing happens. We are simultaneously humbled and thrilled. We are lowered and we are lifted up. But, but the, 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 the catch is to slow down and to get in front of his greatness in order to experience that exhilarating grace that produces poverty of spirit. When you get in touch with a Jesus like that, then you want to start to live like him. And that leads to being having concern for those that are marginalized, and it leads to a kind of humility before God. Well, one of the affirmations that you have is to make the Beatitudes really earthy and practical and, and intersecting with our, our daily life. So whenever you've encouraged about uh, being poor in spirit, you write around. You write about getting around people who are poor in spirit. Have them over for dinner. Go out for coffee. Ask mm -hmm. them to mentor you. Ask them to move in. Right? And share share yeah. with them. Share life with them. And and we we learn poverty of spirit. We learn humility and generosity when we're in real relationships with people. Like it's not something we we learn in the in the abstract in any kind of meaningful sense. We gotta we gotta see it and sense it and feel it and and be friends with people who are are poor in spirit for us to, to really impact us. And of course, 
Jesus is the one who perfectly models humility and generosity, that he did mm. not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but gave it up, taking the very form of a servant, and mm. and redefined greatness, redefined excellence, redefined uh, leadership in in all those in all those ways. I was re- recently listening to uh, Mark Clark, who's a church planter in Vancouver, Canada, and he was talking about the challenge that we need to bring to reading the biblical text is not simply to read it with our own culture in mind, right? So he was talking about, you know, if people are reading about Jesus and, you know, 21st century Western context, they might they might say, ah, the, the teaching on sexuality is maybe not so sure about that, maybe a little rigid, not quite there. But man, teaching on loving your enemies, that's spot on, right? Love that. <laughs> way, to, way to go, Jesus. And, and Mark said, okay, imagine that you just kind of are lifted up and taken to a totally different non-Western context and plunked down in a coffee shop. You might very well hear somebody who says, uh, yeah, Jesus is teaching about sexuality. Not too sure about that. Maybe a little bit too free for me. Uh, but what in the world was he talking about loving your enemies? That I cannot get on board with, right? That is that is not something that I can do whenever you're used to generational violence and ethnic violence and violence mm-hmm. has just gone back in generations. And so it's so easy to bring our cultural expectations to the text and say, right, answer this. Now, you serve as a pastor, so you're in the intersection of preaching, which is the biblical text and the actual lives of your people. You're trying to provide soul care, mm-hmm. spiritual care for them um, um, from the from the biblical text, right? It's not it's not it's not the church of Pastor Jonathan. It's the it's Jesus Church, right? And you're the you're the shepherd. You're the you're the pastor. So you've you've done this work to try and bring these beatitudes and keep them on the ground, seeing how they're grounded in the first century, but then they have real application in the 21st century. All right, I want to kind of go a little bit deeper with this with this last question. Uh, at the beginning of the book, you named several contemporary ethical issues as part of the different crises that we're part of. Um, you name how different uh, current ethical issues are challenging even historic Christian thinking. All right, these might be crises around marriage, the connection of gender to biological sex. Right, there's any number of, of issues that you could pick up. You've picked up some some really difficult ones that mm-hmm. um, church and culture are, are wrestling through and maybe discussing or maybe just kind of arguing about, depending on the people. Uh, but your approach in this book to these issues is not to speak directly to them, but to identify the problem that's kind of underlying them, and then to introduce a beatitude to that underlying problem so that you can kind of translate the beatitude that it hits something that's even deeper than what are still pretty deep, but maybe a little bit more of a surface level issue. Now, uh, you are our seminary trained uh, Biola background, uh, so you've got a uh, uh, master's degree in, in apologetics. So, so thinking clearly, arguing through is not something that you're, you're afraid of, not something you're foreign to, um, but it's not the approach you took in this book. And I, re- I just want to ask you, what would your response be to someone who says, uh, you're not addressing the actual issue, Pastor Jonathan, right? You're, you're not getting to the actual issue. You've got to have a clear word. Uh, not just on moral goodness, but on these moral issues, right? You've got to name the issues and have a word to them. Uh, you're doing this work as a pastor, so you're right in the trenches, not just of people who are saying what you should and should be, shouldn't be doing, right? Your pastor, your your people are probably mm-hmm. giving you this feedback. I'd love mm-hmm. for you to talk to, our, especially our pastors who are listening in, that they've got maybe a similar heartbeat as you do. Like, how do I identify the the deepest issue that I can and speak to that rather than 
addressing the the issue even if, or the moral issue of the day even if they say it's important and even though they recognize yeah there's a place for moral clarity and I, and I want to speak to that but but man as a pastor I want to speak to something that's even deeper talk to the pastor about that talk to the person who says you know uh, we need a clear word and not not just on moral goodness but on these moral issues how would you respond well I would I would agree we do need a clear word on uh, moral issues wherever we can have a clear clear clarity in scripture. Hmm. And so that is important. It's important for God's people and it's important for the, for the world. Um, I do some of that in this book. Uh, however, the book's intention is not to deal with uh, the more, uh, all these different moral issues that you might bring to the book or you might bring to scripture. Um, it's to deal with Jesus beatitudes in the context of moral chaos so I agree that there's a place for that. Um, it's just a different book. However, because I agree with that, I do deal with some of those issues, uh, you know, issues of gender, issues of sexuality um, in the book. Um, <clears throat> as to your question about get, getting below kind of the passing a kind of moral assessment on a particular issue, whether it's gender, sexuality, race, whatever, um, yeah, I think you're 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 picking up kind of my approach in this book and and kind of my heart as a pastor. Um, <clears throat> people will often walk away from the church and walk away from Christians and be unwilling to listen to what Christ, the Bible, or the church has to say because they are immediately judged, um, but on their morality. And when we make an immediate judgment, we might have an internal conviction about it. But when it becomes an external profession or an immediate verbal judgment of someone, we have alienated them on the basis of morality and not on the basis of Christ. So I have conversations, conversations with people who, uh, who have same-sex attraction, who have, live a gay lifestyle um, and in our city and in our church. And in talking with those who are not Christians, I find it important to um, understand their experience before pronouncing a moral judgment and alienating them from Christ. I, I want them to understand that they're not rejecting Christianity because of its views on homosexuality or the LBTQ community. They're rejecting Christianity based on their views of Christ. It's very important that, to me that they walk away understanding the fundamental thing that you need to address is who Jesus claims to be. Hmm. Then we can have the conversations about morality and any number of issues. There's plenty of text to talk about. There's plenty of room to talk about that. But at the end of the day, if you're going to evaluate whether Christianity is true, it can't be based on what you think is good. It has to be based on whether it's true or not. And if it is true, then you then then it should determine what's good. If it's false, well, then find something else that determines what's good. So it really comes down to Jesus Christ. And that that's the heart in the book. So I'm wading into some of the issues and some of the cultural context that people are in. And I'm wanting to listen. So for an example, a, a guy who uh, was not a Christian. He'd been in and out of drugs, uh, was a committed gay man, uh, multiple partners. 
I got to know him. We started spending time together, uh, started uh, you know, basically kind of discipling him. And uh, we got down to this issue of homosexuality. And <clears throat> I, we, we walked through Genesis and some other passages about God's design for sexuality. And he turned to me and said, does God just not want me to be loved? I, the thought of being with a woman makes my skin crawl. Now, I, I don't have same-sex attraction. And, and because of that, that hit me so hard. I don't know what it feels like to, 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 to have that uh, in, my, in my being, that being with someone of the opposite sex would be repulsive. Pastorally, that's very helpful. It helps me empathize with him. It helps me understand just as like you would if someone came to you with a, a porn pornography or masturbation issue and you get into that and you understand some of why they go to that and some of the anxiety or issues in their past and you, you find out some, the understanding the circumstances of sin create space for pastoral mm -hmm. empathy and love. And if I had just thrown down the biblical position on it, I would have alienated him, alienated him from Christ. The goal isn't to make him straight. The goal is to get him to Jesus. Um, and so uh, it was so good to do that. That's the spirit of this book. It, it, I'm trying to wade into cultural issues and listen well. Uh, my, my basic approach is listen to their story, empathize with their story, then retell their story around Jesus. And as I listened to his story and I began to empathize, man, I don't know what that's like. And I can, I can see why you would think God doesn't want you to be loved if that's the way you feel. Listen, I empathize, I said that back to him. And then I, then I retell the story around Jesus and I say to him, while I, com while I understand what you're saying and I can see how you would feel, the fact that God became a man and died on the cross for our sins is evidence that he loves you more than any other man could ever love you or any woman. See, where do you get your notion of love from? Is it from how you feel or is there really a thing called love? Well, the Bible says God is love and he shows it on a cross for you. Now, don't you see, you've been loved to the death. You've been loved so deeply that you can trust God, not just with your soul, but with your sexuality. And, I, and I'm happy to say that over time, that, that conversation led to his baptism. It led to some significant changes in his life. He's not, he's not like, you know, a perfect human being, but he has responded to Christ. And if I had gone on with moral judgments, um, I would have alienated him from hearing the gospel and would have foregone an opportunity to see him turn to Christ and baptize him. So that's the spirit of the book there. You know, I hope that story kind of addresses your question about moral judgments and then kind of the posture of doing cultural apologetics while also grappling with ethical issues. Yeah, one, one of the, the temptations uh, whenever we are, in my opinion, whenever we are uh, only concerned to offer a clear moral word, and I'm with you that I think we need to offer clear moral word when scripture is, is clear because uh, uh, clarity is, is kind and truth is to set us free. And mm -hmm. uh, that is part of our responsibility to be a community of proclamation. 
Um, at the same time, if if we are only concerned with defending the faith, we can sometimes build up walls to what the faith has to do in our own lives. And if we're mm-hmm. only concerned about issues and have specific uh, issues and specific forms of those issues in mind, then we forget how the Beatitudes are still, boy, they are, they've got to cut through the, the sin in in all our lives, right? They've got mm-hmm. to cut through the, the sinful nature in my life. And how does that still, uh, how do the Beatitudes take root and bear fruit um, in my life and, and uproot the sin mm-hmm. that uh, so easily entangles, right? Up, uproot the sin that, that can yes. so easily get planted over and over again. Um, and if we're only concerned about moral issues, then we forget that, well, there's issues in my life, right? Mm-hmm. If I'm concerned about specific moral issues, we forget about the issues in my own life that need to be addressed. And so there's a there's a kind of sneakiness to the Beatitudes that I think that you've worked in your in the ways of applying them. That uh, there's a sneakiness to them that that says this isn't just for those who are are out there. This is also for for us, right? This is for any who find themselves in the sphere of Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. And and I think it's so important whenever we read Scripture that we always do that, knowing that Jesus is there reading with us, right? Mm-hmm. And and to hear that this is Jesus speaking to us that that yeah we can have our private devotional life but man the reading of scripture is a is a corporate activity and even if we're alone reading scripture Jesus is still there speaking and communicating with us and if we don't have mm-hmm. him in mind there speaking communicating with us then we're not reading scripture rightly right it's mm-hmm. a, it's, a, it's a communal act even if it's just me and Jesus and hopefully then beyond that right hopefully there are there are corporate ways that we're reading hearing studying scripture not just on our own but with others as well yeah, and if I could just add to that, the kingdom of God, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. It's bookended, uh, this present tense, the kingdom is yours, mm-hmm. not will be. All the other beatitudes are future promises. The uh, blessed are the persecuted and blessed are the poor in spirit says theirs is the kingdom of God. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Mm-hmm. If you and I are, have a citizenship now in the kingdom of God, if we have access to the kingdom of heaven now, then we of all people have the resources to be humble, to be meek, to be righteous, to be um, gracious and long-suffering with those who don't have those resources, who, who don't have the moral clarity. So I think, you know, of all people, we should be not those that are, you know, divisive and judgmental and self-righteous and pharisaical, but that we, we embody the kingdom now because we are in the kingdom. So we are, love is patient, love is kind. You know, we are long suffering with those who struggle with the very same issues that we struggle with and do not have the resources or the redemption of the king. Joining us today has been Pastor Jonathan Dodson. Jonathan is the author of Our Good Crisis, Overcoming Moral Chaos with the Beatitudes, published by University Press, in which he covers the Beatitudes in the 21st century and how they uh, help to shape our lives in today's day and age in uh, 21st century Western culture. Uh, Pastor Jonathan, thanks for taking this time to share with us and to uh, encourage us today on the Western Seminary podcast. Thank you, Aaron. Thanks for taking the time to read the book and I've enjoyed chatting with you. Thank you, listeners. Uh, I commend the book to you. If you have a friend who is uh, maybe just hardly knows anything about Jesus, what they might know is the Beatitudes, and you can uh, read the Beatitudes with them and hear what Jesus' teaching is, and you don't have to explain it all to them, but Our Good Crisis would be a a good text to kind of think through um, how do these... Uh, how do these this set of sayings, these teachings of Jesus, 
uh, start to give an inroad into a person's life, uh, you can come at it with the attitude that this is part of God's way for them to flourish. And if they are open and receptive, it might be a, a way into reflecting on these uh, passages, introducing Jesus to them, and for you, hopefully, to get to know Jesus better yourself. So, uh, Our Good Crisis, Overcoming Moral Chaos with the Beatitudes, published by Jonathan Dodson from InterVarsity Press. Thanks, listeners, for tuning in. I know that you helped to make these conversations possible. Thanks, Cam, for your production work. Thanks again, uh, Jonathan, for taking the time to be with us. The Wesley Seminary Podcast aims to present topics and resources for fruitful ministry. If you found this episode uh, to accomplish those things, please uh, share it around, tell others about it, and like and subscribe us on whatever platform you're using to listen, to, listen to it. Thanks so much for, uh, for uh, joining us today. Trust you to have a great day. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter under the name Wesley Seminary.